I can tell that I am getting older because I'm starting to forget things way more often. I can't tell you how many times in a given week that Hillary and I will be having a conversation, we'll get interrupted by one of the kids, and when we go back to the conversation, I can't remember what we were talking about. It's like, just evaporates from my brain. It used to bug me, it used to really bug me. Now it's just kind of like so common that it's like, well, I guess if it's important, I'll get back to it later. It'll come back to me later. The worst is when I get in my car and I get on the phone with somebody, I'm going somewhere, I get on the phone with somebody and I forget where I'm going. Anybody done this? Yeah, there are a few people nodding. Yeah, that, I, I do this all the time. In fact, Lloyd knows this about me. And so anytime that Lloyd gets in the car with me, he gets in the passenger seat with me, he goes immediately into co-pilot mode. Like, Bill, hey, you need to get in the left lane up here. You know that, right? Like, Bill, you got to turn left at the light. He starts sounding like Siri. That's what Lloyd starts sounding like. Like, Bill, the destination is 500 feet right up here on the left. He starts sounding like that. It's Lloyd and me. You know, forgetfulness, it's, it's a part of life, isn't it? Apparently, the older you get, the more forgetfulness becomes a part of everyday life. But spiritual forgetfulness, it has serious consequences. In fact, in the Old Testament, when we find the Israelite nation, we find them forgetting. Every time they forgot who God was, it's like when we spiritually forget, they don't, they don't live well. If you forget for too long, it doesn't end well. The same is true for the Israelites. Every time they forgot who they were in Christ, the, the consequences, they were devastating. They were conquered and ruled by another nation. They were forced into slavery. They wandered in the desert. It's it's the reason why when Joshua leads the Israelite nation across the Jordan River and into the promised land, finally, when they cross the Jordan River, it's the reason why they stop there. God has them stop on the bank of the Jordan River to remember the work that God has done on their behalf. And so he tells Joshua to have the priests go back into the river and to pick out 12 stones, 12 river stones from the bed of the river, one for each of the tribes, and build this memorial on the bank, a a memorial to what God did to save them a memorial to God's restoration work in relationship with them to reestablish them as a nation, his chosen nation. And when they, in fact, take these stones and stack them up on the bank of the river at a place called Gilgal, Joshua shared with the nation of Israel what his father, God, had shared with him. And and I want you to hear this. It's found in Joshua chapter 4. Joshua says to the sons of Israel, And your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones here? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan right here on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord had done the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of God, that they may know the Lord is mighty, and so that you, Israelite nation, so that you might fear the Lord your God forever. You see, the Israelites' ability to remember, the Israelites' ability to remember what God had done would determine the very nature of their relationship with God going forward even into eternity. 
And in our text for today, which is Ephesians chapter 4, we'll turn there in just a minute. In our text for today, we're going to find that spiritual forgetfulness, it still has very serious consequences. But remembering well, remembering what God has done in your life, remembering well, that leads to living well. This is my outline for today. Paul gives us a, a personal exhortation. Okay, that's, that's in the first three verses of our text. Again, we'll turn there in just a second. God gives, or Paul gives us a personal exhortation, and then, then he, he supports that with a theological explanation. And then next week, Lloyd will come, and we'll look at the practical application. Okay, so theological explanation that supports a personal exhortation. Those are the two parts that we will look at today. And I'm in Ephesians chapter 4, so take out your Bible and turn there. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 to 24. We'll look at these eight verses this week, and then Lloyd will pick up with verse 25 to 32 next week. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, and 17 to 19 are Paul's personal exhortation to us, okay? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Just follow along with me as I read. Here's what Paul says. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. I'm going to stop there and look at Paul's exhortation for just a few moments. What, what is it that Paul exhorts us to do? What is his personal exhortation to us? It's simply this. Don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Now, what, what does he mean? Well, the word walk, we know this, we saw it in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul uses it throughout. Anytime you hear the word walk, it, just think about how you live. You can replace the word walk in the book of Ephesians with the word live, so how you live. And then Gentiles, what, what Paul's talking about here are the non-believing Gentiles in Ephesus. This is not the Gentiles that are the saints that he's writing to in the church. No, these are the non-believing Gentiles. We might just think about the Gentiles as the world. So what Paul says here, here's the exhortation, don't live as the world lives. Well, how does the world live? Paul spends three verses describing how the world lives. And he says at the end of verse 19, literally translated, they are greedy for impurity. Well, well what does that mean? It means that those who walk those who live life apart from God, it, it means that those who are apart from God, their appetite for immorality will never be satisfied. That's what it means. It's progressive. Their thirst for sin will never be quenched. So however steeped in impurity you were last week, you are only more so today. It only gets progressively worse. And if it goes unbridled long enough, if that continues long enough into adulthood, it results in total licentiousness, uninhibited lust, and extreme 
selfishness. That's the progression that we see here in the text. Paul's description of the Gentiles. John Stott, he he outlines the progression this way. He says this, hardness of heart, that's where it begins. It leads to darkness of mind and then to deadness of soul under the judgment of God and finally to recklessness of life which, by the way, is the exact same progression that we find in Romans chapter 1. Now, the heart, the heart's the core of a person. It's the center of our being. Harold Honer describes it this way. He he says the heart is the, the seat, okay, the center of thought and understanding, will and volition, and religious and moral conduct. So the heart, in a biblical sense, it includes the activity of both the will and the mind. It includes the activity of both the hands and the head. So so when we read hardness of heart here, we're talking about a willful rejection of the truth of God. That's what we're talking about when Paul says hardness of heart. This is a deliberate rejection of the truth. It's a combination, in fact, of two things. It's a combination of spiritual blindness, that is the inability to comprehend God's truth, that's certainly true, and spiritual culpability. That is the, the, the inability not just to understand God's truth, but an unwillingness to embrace God's truth. So these two things, blindness and culpability, they go together. And Romans 1.18 says about hardness of heart that those who are hard of heart suppress the truth. So they're around truth. They might even know some truth, but they reject or they suppress the truth. And this hardness then leads to darkness, which is the absence of spiritual understanding. Paul talks about it like spiritual ignorance. He says futility of the mind when it comes to spiritual things. And the idea is that the more the truth is suppressed, hardness, the harder it is to grasp, spiritual reality, that is darkness. And then hardness and darkness, they lead to deadness, spiritual deadness. Uh, Paul describes it this way as as excluded from the life of God. We might have said earlier in Ephesians that separated from the life of God, that is separated from relationship with God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, we we saw this very thing. It's, It's where Paul says, apart from Christ, we are dead. You remember this, Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3? We we are dead, not not partially alive, not breathing, not not on life support. No, we are dead. You might remember face down on the bottom of the ocean, dead, totally unable to do anything but stay dead. Spiritual death. That's the picture that Paul is painting again here. And hardness is... Darkness and deadness, John Stott says, leads to recklessness, a a reckless life. Paul says a calloused life. You know, if you were to uh, rub a place on your skin hard enough, long enough, you'd develop callous there. I've got calluses all over the insides of my hands from hitting golf balls over the years. They're they're hard, they're worn, they're crusty, they're tough, they're they're insensitive places on the skin. It doesn't feel the same right here on my skin as it does on other parts of my skin. And that's what Paul means by callous life. It's, it's insensitive to God. It's insensitive to the, to the truth of God. 
apathetic to who God is. And, And then Paul says, and that apathy, it becomes slave to all forms of sensuality and to every other kind of impurity with an unquenchable lust for more. This is bad news for the Gentiles, isn't it? But what's interesting about this is that it's not written to the Gentiles. See, this is written to the church. Remember, Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, writing to the saints at the church at Ephesus. I'm writing to the church now today. This is written for us. So why? Why does Paul write this to us? Here's why. Because he wants us to remember who we were. That's why. He wants us to remember. Well, when when was I like that? Before Christ. Who we were before Christ. In fact, he makes it very clear in verse 19. He says, walk no longer. You see that? No longer as the Gentiles walk. Implied, you used to walk like them. When? Before you knew Christ. Before Christ, you were on this very same path. All of us were. You were somewhere on this downward progression. Now, when I think about life before Christ, I get this picture in my mind of going through life with a blindfold on. That's the picture that I get. It's like, can you imagine waking up, can you imagine waking up on a given morning with a blindfold tied neatly around your head, dark blindfold, you can't see anything out of this blindfold. You get up out of your bed and you're you're stumbling around your house. And I actually think most of us would do okay around our houses. It's familiar to us. And so you stumble into the kitchen and you figure out how to get the coffee going. And then you stumble back into your bedroom and into your bathroom and you you get into the shower. It's like, I can take clothes off and get in the shower with a blindfold on. I, I can do that. Of course, You have no idea that you just rubbed lotion all in your hair instead of shampoo, but you you make it through the shower, right? You get out, you get your clothes on, and and you go to cook breakfast, and you're trying to cook bacon over the stove on breakfast, and you get through the bacon, and you eat very crispy, burnt bacon uh, in the kitchen, and and then you get in the car to go to work. You're blindfolded on. And now it starts to get interesting, doesn't it? And I think probably you could get out of your driveway. You've done it so many times. And maybe some of you could even get out of your neighborhood. But the longer you go, the more serious it gets, right? The more serious the consequences are. Sooner or later, you're going to kill yourself driving with a blindfold on. Now, I'm not saying that at age six we are totally given over to impurity. We, we are totally immoral. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. The text doesn't say that. I, I'm just saying that you are on that progression. You are on that downward progression if you are apart from Christ. And if you walk that progression long enough, if you walk it, walk it well into adulthood, then sooner or later, it, it's going to get ugly. If you keep your blindfold on that long, it's going to result in an absolute mess. Paul's personal exhortation to us is to remember who we were. Why? Because forgetting has serious consequences. And then he supports his exhortation with a theological explanation. You're going to have to hang with me here because this is theologically rich. 
and deep. Look at verses 20 through 24. But, key word, writing to the Gentiles in the church, you're not like the Gentiles in the world, but you, church, did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, we just saw that, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Now, Paul knows what the people in the church of Ephesus have been taught. He's been one of their teachers. So when he uses these three phrases, you learned Christ, you heard Christ, you were taught in him, verses 20 and 21, do you see those three? You learned Christ, you heard Christ, you were taught in Christ. He isn't worried about whether or not they were taught, as the English translation might help us to imply. No, he's not worried about whether or not they were taught. He's reminding them of what they have been taught. Don't forget, church, what you've learned. Don't forget that you've been taught something very different than the world. Don't forget that you have, in fact, learned Christ. And he means more here than just knowing about Christ, more than just knowledge. He's talking here about personal relationship with Christ. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, to learn Christ, at least in the way that Paul means it here, is to be saved. Hey, church, hey, church, remember what you've been taught. Everything, everything, everything is about Jesus. That's what Paul says here. It's all about Jesus. So, so Jesus is the subject matter. You learned Christ. He is the teacher. You heard Christ, not physically, but Paul assumes that through the voices of their Christian teachers, including himself, they have actually heard the voice of Christ, which of course is the same hope that Michael Lloyd and I have when we teach the Bible to you. You learned Christ, you heard Christ, and Jesus is in fact also the the context for their learning. This is interesting. You were taught in Christ, Paul says, meaning that In a supernatural, only God kind of way, Jesus helps us to know Jesus. He is the embodiment of truth. There is no truth apart from him, and he helps us to understand that truth and be saved. And then Paul continues this thought, and he continues this thought by talking about what it means to lay aside your old self and to put on your new self. And the first time I read that this week, I I just was making observations and I wrote this question, how? Like, how is it that we lay aside our old self, the old corrupted, deceived self, and how is it then that we put on our new self? How is it, as the text says, that we clothe ourselves in the likeness of God? How is it that we clothe ourselves in holiness and righteousness? By the way, this is helpful here, at least for me. Thinking about these two terms, these two phrases in in terms of clothing, like I take something off and I put something on, that's actually helpful. 
It's what the verbs mean. It's to take a garment off or to put a, a garment on. It's, it's literally this. Laying aside is, is to take something off that has always been on, like an old garment. At one point, uh, appealed very much to you. It became comfortable to you. Now it's become old and worn to you. And then the putting on is to take it off and put something on in its place. Something new, something fresh and clean, something different. Something that you have never worn before. So that's helpful for us. But the question remains, doesn't it? How do I take off the old and put on the new? And the answer is, you don't. You don't. That's already been done. The taking off and the putting on, you don't do that. You can't do that. Why? Because only Jesus can do that, and he has already done that for you. This is the aha moment in the text for me. I've been confused about this passage and others like it. I've thought that that the putting off and and the putting on was a part of my responsibility. That that was an ongoing thing. And and by the way, there are other places in the Scripture uh, um, where, where God does talk about putting on character things that that are different than this. That's not it here. This is not about what we do or are responsible for here. I'm not responsible and neither are you. That was done once and for all the moment you were saved. That was finished work. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you are right now, wearing new clothes. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is saved in Christ, in relationship with Christ, we've talked about that throughout the whole Ephesians series. If anyone is in Christ, Paul writes in Corinthians, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Colossians 3, if you have been raised up with Christ, means saved. The imagery is baptism language. Remember the symbolism of baptism that we make public what is true about our faith. We are buried with Christ in baptism and raised as Jesus was raised from the grave. That's talking about salvation. If you have been raised up with Christ, you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you have put on the new self. Now I want you to see it out of our own text as well. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 20, this is one long sentence about the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is one of the best theological explanations we have about what it actually means for us to be saved. Okay, The verbs here, Lay aside and put on. They are aortist middle infinitives. Okay, just stay with me for a second. They're aortist middle infinitive verbs, meaning they refer back to Jesus in verse 21. The truth is in Jesus. Okay, they refer back to Jesus and they indicate by their tense a once and for all action completed by Jesus for us at salvation. That job, men and women, is finished. Salvation itself is total transformation. 
That's why we talk about salvation that way. It's not just that you receive something new, you become something new, recreated in the very image of God, just like Adam was originally created in the image of God, then fell, distorted the image of God. Now we are recreated by Christ in the image of God to live holy and righteous as he has lived on our behalf. And it's why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ever wondered about that verse? Like, how is that true? Well, this is how. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in my new nature. And it's why Paul says here to us, don't forget who you are. Now, I want us to step back from the text just for a minute because I I have something that I want us to think about. If I have a new nature, and if that new nature is Christ in me, why do I still sin? Why do I continue to to sin? Well, we got to start here and and make sure that our assumption is correct in in the question. So so this is just yes or no for for me and you. These are not hard. Is there any sin in Jesus Christ? Is there any sin in Jesus Christ? Yes or no? No. Has there ever been any sin in Jesus Christ? Ever? No. No, absolutely not. Can Christ in me sin? Can Christ in me sin? Yes or no? No. Then can Christ, who is my new nature, can my new nature sin? Yes or no? No, it cannot sin, but I still sin. Yes, you do. And Paul explains it in Romans chapter 7. He says, no longer... Am I the one doing it? I am a new creation. But sin which dwells in me, okay? For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, nothing good in my flesh. There's a new term. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not present in me. So there is a difference between our new nature and our flesh. You and I are still flesh. I'm looking at you, you're looking at me. We wear humanness as flesh and we will be flesh until we are given new spiritual bodies in heaven, until our flesh itself is redeemed. Sin is found in our flesh. Our yet to be redeemed flesh that houses our new nature. Okay, these these two things are, on earth, are actually present at the same time. And we live out of our flesh. When we live out of our flesh, we sin. We gravitate toward who we once were. Not our old nature, that's gone. But toward our old sinful habits. That's what we do when we live out of our flesh. Paul says that happens. You tend toward who you once were when you forget who you are. That's what Paul's saying. When you don't remember what's true about you now. Now, I want us to think about this. Why are there so many references to the mind in this passage? Spiritual understanding, spiritual ignorance, capacity, darkness, renewing of the mind. Why are there so many references to the mind in this passage? Because as James Boyce says, 
people act as they think. Bottom line is we sin because we have a thinking problem. That's why we sin. I was thinking about this in my own life, and I wrote this uh, phrase, this sentence down in my journal this week, and I just was thinking about this, and here's how I started thinking about it. I just said, if, if I'm going to take seriously Paul's exhortation, my own life, if I'm going to take seriously Paul's exhortation to remember who I once was, to remember who I am, and to walk now differently than who I once was, to walk not as the Gentiles walk, but in the image of God. If I'm going to take that exhortation seriously, then, then I better know where the world sucks me in. I better know where my flesh gravitates towards sin. There's general things that are true about all of us, but there are unique things that are true about each one of our old sinful habits. And then I wrote down some of the things that I tend toward in my own flesh. Comparison. I get caught up in things others have that I don't. Might be affluence. It might be margin. It might be travel. But I can get caught up in that. Pride. You know, when I'm around somebody that I don't enjoy being around very much, I'm not saying that's any of you in this room, clearly, but if if I'm around somebody like that, you know where my mind goes? It doesn't just go to get me out of here. It does go there, but it doesn't just go there. It goes to, you know, I'm just more mature than they are. You know what that is? Arrogance. Pride. It's where I go in my flesh. Independence. I don't need you. And I don't need God's help. I don't need your help or God's. I can go there in my flesh. Now, don't look at me like you don't go there too. I know we go there. Do. Critical of myself and of others. Selfishness. Start thinking that I deserve something. That's where I can go in my flesh. This church year is a whole lot like the school calendar year. Really fires up in August. Runs through Christmas. and Everybody comes back in January. And they got Easter and as you come to May, it kind of starts winding down. We get some time off in, in the summer. And this year, I, I get tired every year. I'm always tired in May from just the rhythm of the church here. This year, as we approached April, Michael had to have back surgery. So that means that two campuses, Lloyd and I have taught about every week for two or three months, one of the two campuses. I'm, I'm tired. Now, I want you to understand this. I am thrilled to stand in for Michael. Lloyd is too, like... That's the privilege about being part of a team. If I was one pastor somewhere teaching 48 times, I would not make it. I wouldn't do it. No, that's the privilege. But I'm, I'm tired as I stand here this morning. You know where my mind can go when I get tired? Dang, I wish I had a break. God, I wish, sheesh, I'm working 70-hour weeks some weeks. I'm tired of this. I can go selfish quick. And on Thursday, I, I was sitting at my desk staring at this list. And this was before I developed the message. And I just wrote beside comparison. Comparison. Get caught up in things others have that I don't. That's a thinking problem, isn't it? Jealousy. I'm thinking about what others have. I'm thinking about what I don't. That's, that's a thinking problem. Pride. I, I'm better than somebody else. <laughs> God, thinking problem. Christ came to save all of us, right? We're all equal. Our sin, independence, don't need your help or God. That's a thinking problem, critical, selfish. These are all 
thinking problems. Why does Paul spend the first three chapters of this book reminding us who we are? Because we forget. Because we don't think clearly about who we are all the time. Why is remembering our salvation so important to Paul? Because remembering what's true, remembering what's true about what Jesus did to transform you from the old to the new, remembering what's true changes our thinking. Remembering well leads to a different way of life. It leads to a different walk a walk worthy of the manner in which we have been called, Ephesians 4, verse 1. If we will remember well, then we will think well, and then we will wear well our new clothes. We will wear the truth. We will act as we think, and we will progressively become more and more of who we already are. We will, which points us, of course, it sets up next week where this theological explanation leads to a practical application that Lloyd will take us through. So what? The Israelites stopped on the bank of the Jordan River to remember. They didn't want to forget what God had done. And what was true for the Israelites is true for us. And so I want to give us just a couple of moments to remember. I don't want us to leave here this morning without taking some time to remember what's true about God's hand in our own personal lives. I want to invite you to do that before your personal Savior and before your Father in heaven to remember who you were for Christ, to remember what God did Whatever circumstances or people God used to help you understand the truth, what God did to save you, and to remember even who you are already in your new clothes sitting here today. So would you take just a couple of moments to remember, and then I'll close us. Father, it's true from your word that when we remember well, We will think well, and that will give us hope to live well because of your faithfulness, past, present, and future. Would you make us a people who stop to stack stones to remember? And would you make us a people who have eyes, mind, thoughts, your spirit to help us understand this deep and rich theological truth of what you did the moment that we were saved to erase the old and to give us a new nature. And may we look forward as a people from this point, living out of our new being. May we look forward to the day that you will actually fully clothe us in perfect holiness and righteousness in your presence. May we live well. May we think well, and may we remember well until that day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.